You're listening to the Broken Mirrors podcast, providing a unique set of views on the foreign policy, intelligence, and security world. I'm Mark Stout of Johns Hopkins University, but you may also know my voice from SpyCast, the secret files of the International Spy Museum. You and I are both fortunate to experience the inaugural episode of Broken Mirrors, and now, here are your hosts, Mark and Tom. I'm Dr. Mark Tyrrell in Ottawa, Canada, and I'm here with my colleague and co-host Tom Quiggan. Together, and with a number of guests, we're going to be bringing you a season of podcasts called Broken Mirrors. The focus of this series is to address and discuss major military security and intelligence issues. Rather than engaging in a partisan, adversarial approach, we want to use civil discourse, and to do this, broadly speaking, through a realist perspective. Consistent with our core values, we want to bridge the gap between thinking and doing. In effect, the major disconnects that are often seen between policy and strategy, between strategy and tactics, and between strategy and acquisition. We also need to look at how we bridge strategy over time and how we do bridging across cultures. First, some housekeeping. Being the inaugural episode of Broken Mirrors, we need to introduce ourselves. So, in a nutshell, this is Tom. Oh, you probably want more details. Tom spent the Cold War in the North Atlantic doing anti-submarine and electronic warfare, as well as search and rescue work. After getting an MA in international relations, he was commissioned and transferred to intelligence. Post-Cold War military service, Tom deployed to Bosnia and Croatia during the war there, as well as secondary duties as an arms control inspector. He also keeps talking about a 1992 visit to northern Albania, but he won't give me any details right now. After military service, Tom worked for a number of law enforcement and intelligence agencies, which resulted in multiple appearances in court testifying in national security and terrorism cases. In this role, he was qualified as a court expert on terrorism and as an expert on the reliability of intelligence as evidence in court. He later served as the operational and security risk manager for a central bank and has filled a number of academic positions in Canada and Singapore. When not working on these issues, he can be found touring down side roads on a big motorcycle, looking for the world's best greasy spoon diner. Thanks, Mark. Maybe one of these days you can explain something to me about the motorcycle. For those of you that don't know, Mark is a symbolic anthropologist, which basically means he likes to focus on how people make sense of their lives using symbol systems and rituals. He has a particular interest in high-stress situations such as insurgencies and terrorism campaigns. In addition to looking at these sorts of things, he's also examined modern witchcraft, corporate firing rituals, and the interplay between music and action. It is not for nothing, perhaps, that Mark says anthropology is the last disciplinary refuge of the Renaissance man. On a more operational side, a subject near and dear to my heart, Mark has worked with a variety of institutions such as the Office of Naval Research and has addressed the Center for Army Analysis, the Naval Postgraduate School, and the Academy of Management. In addition to that, he's done considerable work for the militaries in Britain and in Canada. His focus on patterns of meaning spills over into his personal life as well as a professional singer with the Ottawa Bach Choir. Needless to say, this is a group that specializes in Baroque music. Nothing says complex pattern behavior 
like Baroque music or an insurgency campaign. Well, we're also dealing with some pretty Baroque issues when we're talking about intelligence and about military operations as well. But part of that Baroqueness, that complexity, comes out not in the discussions surrounding them, but in how those discussions are perceived. And this gets us back to one of the key points that I think is important in these Broken Mirrors podcasts. Namely, we're coming from Canada. Historically, Canada and the U.S. have had very close relationship. We can say we're from the same family. You know, we could say kissing cousins. We could say brothers who grew up in the same house and decided to get our own. But regardless, after having first fought two wars, the Revolution, and then later the War of 1812, we're now the strongest of allies running around, and we have the largest undefended border in the world. And I think this says something about the relations between the two of us. Thanks, Mark. It's true. I mean, Canadian soldiers and Canadian intelligence personnel have served around the world together. This goes back uh, to the uh, Normandy invasions in World War II. It goes back to the Canadian land, air, and sea presence in Korea. Uh, Canadian fighter planes and refuelers were in the Gulf War, and Canadian uh, ships have been deployed to the Gulf since 9-11. It's a little-known fact, but uh, Canadian special forces were on the ground in Afghanistan in October of 2001, providing top cover to a number of American forces operating there. Our special forces presence was followed up by tanks. In fact, we were the first country to put heavy armor into Afghanistan since the Soviets. I'm not quite sure what that says about us, but nonetheless, there we were. We also had heavy artillery and loads of infantry. At the same time, it's probably worth noting that the commander of the Air Forces in the recent Libyan campaign was also a Canadian. And something that was not discussed very much and something we don't bring up a lot of the time is the uh, deputy commander of NORAD on 9-11 was actually a Canadian. So, I mean, it's worth remembering, Mark, too, that Canadians on occasion have been able to save the day for U.S. forces in places such as Kapyong in Korea, where a Canadian and an Australian battalion were essentially able to blunt the Chinese attack to allow American 1 Corps and 9 Corps uh, to maintain their lines without collapsing. However, it's also probably fair to note that most of the time, Canadians are only able to do their job in the field due to the big umbrella that is provided by U.S. forces and U.S. intelligence. The uh, Canadian success at the, uh, at the uh, Sarajevo airport operation in 1992 was largely due to a U.S. intelligence and air power support component that went largely unseen and largely unnoted. That relationship the closeness of it goes over in a number of areas. However, there are also some significant differences between how culture operates in Canada and in the United States. And I think one of the things that we're trying to really bring this, I mentioned earlier that you know we're centering this around civil discourse. Well, civil discourse, you know, as in any discussions in families, means you have to be able to agree to disagree and to be able to provide alternate ideas. And one of the key pieces, one of the key strengths, I think, of both the British, Canadian, Australian, New Zealand system is the concept of a loyal opposition. So you can speak to the government and say, Mr. Prime Minister, I think you're mistaken. Here is why I think you're mistaken. And I hope you're going to listen to these points because if you don't, we'll hammer you in the next election on them. But when you state that through the loyal opposition, it's still loyal. It may be attacking the government, but it's not attacking the state. This is something that we don't see happening in most Republican systems. So, for example, we don't see it that much in France, and we don't see it in the United States as well. 
in many ways what we're trying to get across here is that we are going to act as the loyal opposition to certain American issues that come up. And I think we've got an advantage because of our close ties. We share a culture. We share a lot of history. We share a lot of operational experience. And we can say, brother, we think you're wrong. One of the other things I found as a Canadian uh, serving with uh, U.S. military forces or being on American military bases is exactly that. Uh, they're often constrained by what they're allowed to say or what's politically correct to say in a certain environment. But being Canadian, you can just blurt out a stupid statement or blurt, uh, blurt out perhaps a bit of meaningful reality. Uh, that way the message gets out. The political correctness thing isn't hurt because, well, you know, Canadians are a bit thick and a bit slow anyway, and clearly that guy didn't really understand what he was saying. But nonetheless, you fill that, you fill that, uh, or you fulfill that useful role, sometimes maybe as court jester. You know, Tom, I think one of the uh, crucial things that comes out of all of this talk about how Canada and the U.S. are related, how useful we are to each other, really highlights how we're going to be structuring a lot of our podcasts from now on because we're really going to be setting it in a tripartite structure. First part is always going to be what's the broad strategic or grand strategic outlook on the issue we're focusing in on in that section. Second one will be the operational. And the third segment is always going to be tactical. And that is going to be collapsing and expanding over time as well. So we may end up going back talking about hunter-gatherer groups from 50,000 years ago. I know, stop rolling your eyes, Tom. Uh, or we could be talking about what's coming out immediately in the news right now. So we'll be going through that entire time. So today's topic that we're going to be dealing with is a complex one, but one that's getting a lot of press. That's the press and its relationship to intelligence, its relationship to reporting, and its relationship to communications technology and how this is all impacting on mainly intelligence, but also possibly military operations, and has been doing this for the past, oh, let's talk 50, 60 years, since the end of World War II. In the tactical segment, we're going to be talking more about two specific ones, mainly Edward Snowden and his release of NSA documents, but also touching on Bradley Manning a bit. But really, and I mean, the tactical is going to be your area for most of it, we're going to be trying to focus in on what actual damage has happened and what, or more importantly, who, has actually been damaged. Because we don't tend to see that type of discussion going on very often. Broken Mirrors For our second segment, we're joined by Ian McLeod. Ian is a veteran reporter with the Ottawa Citizen who has over 30 years of experience in reporting on issues surrounding intelligence, national security, the military, and terrorism. Now, in broadcast technology, so radio, television as the key ones, what you have is a setup whereby governments will license their production and their continuing and ongoing use. So the ability to control what is sent out to people is very, very strong. If the government doesn't like what you're saying, they'll just close down that newspaper, that radio station, that television station. And we see this all the time in Europe, in uh, South America, not that I would mention Canada or the U.S., uh, because we do it slightly differently. Uh, now that's great, as long as you want to control a narrative. 
because the state can come down and pretty much control the narratives in the major outlets. Fine. Once we start moving into more interactive technologies, however, look at things like blogging, look at uh, online newspapers and the comment sections coming out, look at War on the Rocks. Once we move to the interactive technologies, you're actually bypassing an incredible amount of what used to be referred to as editorial control. You're also, because of the low cost of most of the interactive technologies, pretty much anyone can produce something online. And the Drudge Report is actually a very good example of this. Drudge coming out of pretty much nowhere and now having a mass following. We can see this with other blogs. The Duffel blog is another good military example of this. So it becomes much harder to control the narrative. Not only that, because the narrative space is not nationally controllable, it's international, and it's not even controllable internationally. So you can have people in Canada or in the US reading blogs that may be written by Americans or Canadians, but they're housed in the Cayman Islands, or Little America, or China, or Russia. So the capability of doing it, the call it the legislative capability of doing it, is much more strictly, or much less strictly controlled. Which leads us to the point of narratives can't be controlled by the state as much. But, you know, why don't we back up a bit, because I think that question about, you know, who is a journalist is a really critical one, and I think that's changed radically, and, and Ian, maybe you could, uh, you know, toss some observations out. Well, you've, you've got the, the rise of the, uh, the so-called citizen journalists now uh, on, on electronic formats. Uh, I, I don't, uh, I don't uh, uh, think that uh, it's, it's wrong to call bloggers and others journalists, provided they uh, abide by uh, you know, standard uh, and agreed to uh, behavior in terms of uh, the way they gather their information. They can present it whatever way they want, but um, I, I think journalism uh, connotates to, 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 to readers and to viewers that a certain standard has been applied to the gathering of this news and, and the presentation of it. And, you know, we could discuss those all day long. Uh, but I think somebody who has a thoughtful approach to it and has uh, fairness and accuracy in mind uh, can legitimately call themselves a journalist, uh, even if they're just sitting in their basement. Um, I'm, I'm not going to try and uh, uh, possess that just because I'm a paid journalist. One of the things that interests me in is how journalism sources seem to have changed over the years. Maybe I'm wrong, but when I read newspaper stories now, I see a lot more commentary that says, um, according to a source close to the situation, or according to a person who wished to remain, who wished to remain anonymous, uh, or you know, a source that can't be identified. It strikes me that there must be a real problem for journalists. On the one hand, you've got very senior government personnel now who aren't allowed to speak at all. All they can say is whatever has come to them on their Blackberry and the speaking points that have been issued by the central government. On the other hand, uh, it's increasingly difficult to find people who are willing to speak out against the government uh, for fear of retribution. So as a journalist, I mean, am I correct in that, that the, there seems to be a lot more statements that, you know, this is a source we can't reveal uh, because of the way journalism has changed vis-a-vis -vis, uh, technology, the way the government's doing it? Yeah, Tom, uh, I think you're, you're right right on on that one. Uh, uh, 
you know, I, I've been around long enough that uh, um, internet didn't exist, and uh, uh, technology has changed journalism in, in, in a lot of very profound ways, but on an operational sort of side, a daily sort of journalism side. Uh, when I started this business, if you wanted a government report on something, uh, you, you'd call uh, the office, the department, order it up if it was available, and they would put it in the mail, and it might arrive 10 days later. Or you might go down and pick it up two days later. Uh, now you can access that sort of information, again, if it's available, uh, immediately, which speeds up the whole news production thing, makes my job a lot easier. Uh, there's a lot more access to a lot more information than there ever was back in the uh, 70s and 80s when I started out. Uh, the flip side is is that uh, technology, and especially email, has changed the way journalism is done these days. And in the Canadian government context, in this town in Ottawa, uh, it is now a standard operating procedure. If you want comment from the government, uh, you contact the department media uh, office. They ask you for a list of questions. They get back to you either later that day, usually right near your deadline, or uh, days later. And the problem with that is they, the, you'll usually get a response that's very specific to your question, some, quite often no response at all, uh, or a letter saying no response. But there's no, uh, there's no conversation between journalists and, and, and government officials anymore in that sense. You, you know, when you talk with somebody on the telephone or in person, there's a give and take in the conversation. You ask for clarification, you ask secondary questions. You get a, a much better understanding of, of the issue you're discussing through that two-way back and forth. When you have to send uh, six email questions and you get uh, four back in very specific uh, sort of uh, uh, vague terms, it, it, it really changes the, 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 the product, the journalism product. Uh, in terms of sources, uh, the same thing. You cannot uh, speak to government officials anymore. The Harper government has taken this to an extreme, which has uh, uh, you know, been, been said by many people. Uh, you uh, in, in Ottawa now, you, it's, it's very difficult to find sources. I don't work on the Hill. Uh, I'm not a political reporter, but I do uh, quite often my path crosses government departments. Uh, and sources are hard to come by, one, because of the punitive factor of government officials speaking out, and it, it's very frustrating, and it, uh, it, uh, it, in the end, it, it, it's just much harder to uh, get to, quote-unquote, the truth of matters. Well, Ian, you've been a reporter for a long time. I know you've worked on criminal issues, intelligence issues, terrorism issues, national security issues, nuclear issues, that, that sort of story. Um, I'm also aware of the fact you've traveled internationally to pursue these stories. I'm wondering now, um, with all this business of not being able to talk to officials directly, you're, you know, you and your, your partners maybe in the journalism profession are constantly, like I said, putting in statements like a source that can't be named, an unidentified source. So it used to be the journalist's job was to sort of identify a story, talk to several different points of view. Uh, and then put that in front of the concerned citizen, the reader, uh, and the concerned citizen or the reader could try and divine the facts out of it or establish a point of view or whatever. Now, the only voice speaking is that of the journalist. Uh, the journalist voice is speaking and everybody else is just unidentified or can't be named. Does, has this changed the nature of journalism as well? Has it changed the sort of relationship between well, you I, and the reader? I, I, think, I think it has. I, I think 
Listen, anytime somebody sees a, a person reading a newspaper story, uh, says an unidentified source or a person who uh, won't, won't spoke on the condition of anonymity, it, 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 it uh, hurts the credibility of the story. Uh, there's just no doubt about it. Uh, some people, in fact, at the extreme, believe we make this stuff up, which is why we try and stay away from anonymous sources. Uh, but it, with, the, with the drying up of official comment, um, you have to rely on anonymous sources more and more, and it, it's a, put us in a real quandary. Uh, we certainly don't want to do it. I know uh, under uh, previous uh, regimes at my newspaper, for example, if you wanted to quote an anonymous source, you had to really lay out a strong case for doing it um, and find other ways to go around it, uh, find other sources. The, the other point you bring up, Tom, is that uh, uh, you, know, you do now get additional sources in a story other than the government source or the anonymous source, but they are typically um, individuals who are opposed to whatever the issue is. So they're, all, they're always available to speak and to comment. So what it can do, if you're not careful, is imbalance the story, because the only people who are talk are the critics of that issue, um, and you can load your story up with that and, and present a, uh, uh, you know, it comes out unbalanced, because the only people who will talk are the critics. One of, one of the things, and this is pulling off of that observation you just made that is worrying me significantly, is if we're looking at dealing with intelligence issues or national security issues, the best way to get sources is to be where they are and meet them informally, get to know them informally, develop a trust relationship. Well, if, if new up-and-coming journalists don't have the income to allow them to, say, go down to D.C. for conferences and spend you know, 1500 or $2,000 to get to a DEF CON or something like that, how are you going to be able to develop potential sources? You're absolutely right. Travel budgets are are gone now. Um, it, it was only a decade ago where you know I was routinely uh, flying to Europe, uh, and now uh, it's not just my paper. I mean, I have to uh, make a strong case to get a train ticket to Toronto. Uh, we're lucky in Ottawa in terms of my beat in that there are a number of national security people here in conferences where you can get out and, and uh, uh, meet folks. Um, but it, it, it's still a chore, and uh, uh, the budgetary woes uh, uh, compound things tremendously, and also the, the lack of people in the newsroom. There are days when uh, um, uh, I will be given a local story to do, because, Ian, there's nobody else here today. Everybody else is tied up, so there you go. I'm not covering something else. Well, it's interesting you raise that because that's always been a difference between Canada and the U.S. Um, not sure where it comes from. Certainly in Ontario, some of it I know came out of the Family Compact, which would just sweep stuff under the uh, under the rug whenever it was convenient or embarrassing to somebody. But if we look at that, you know, uh, paternalistic culture. I mean, purely personally, I'm seeing something similar to that developing in the U.S. as well. And I, I, I'm seeing it as grating on a lot of Americans, regardless of what their political stance is. And, you know, maybe this is accounting for some of the, uh, you know, low polls for Congress, the Senate, and some of the mistrust that seems to be placed in politicians. Well, you know, this this whole uh, the Snowden re revelations on top of WikiLeaks, I'm... I'm actually surprised that Americans um, haven't been screaming louder about these intrusions. Um, uh, 
you mentioned it earlier, Tom, but I, I think you know the quote-unquote usual suspects are standing up and 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 uh, you know screaming. But the average Joe in the United States, I just don't see a big uh, a big outburst over over this stuff, and that 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 worries me. Uh, I think part of it, uh, I wrote about this recently, you know, on, on one hand, we've got a society that, uh, especially the younger generations, that spend their days, you know, uh, exposing their lives and tweets and internet and Facebook and whatnot, and to complete strangers. And uh, it's there usually as a permanent record, and, and some of their, you know, most intimate thoughts uh, go up on sites, yet uh, people have a... A completely different reaction when they hear that the government may be quote-unquote spying on them. I, 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 I'm not sure how to reconcile these two, uh, but, but it, it's just a, a, you know, an observation that I make. Um, the, the society thinks in two different ways about privacy. Um, and there, you know, on privacy, there seems to be no privacy anymore. I mean, I think uh, privacy is a, uh, is a, uh, you know, a, uh, an, uh, an obsolete term. In a lot of ways, I'd agree with you. I mean, the flip side of the paternalistic one uh, attitude in Canada was that I don't think we expected as much privacy. Expected to be left alone to do stuff, but not much privacy when you think about it. I think you're right. The American psyche is, is much more about, uh, you know, the whole independence of the individual, which includes privacy and uh, 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 space to do what I want to do. I think that that's ingrained in, in, in America and uh, uh, is one of, the, uh, one of the key motivators of being an American. Broken Mirrors. Canadians pay very close attention to the U.S. military and to the U.S. intelligence communities. If nothing else, our lives depend upon it and we work closely with them in the field. So, given the symbiotic relationship and the long history, how do we view current events surrounding Mr. Snowden and his decision to expose large amounts of information pertaining to the U.S. intelligence community? As a Canadian who has served alongside U.S. forces overseas and actually spent a short time at the National Military Joint Intelligence Center at the Pentagon, I would probably see a damage assessment differently from most Americans. I would look at it from the point of view of the U.S. government itself at the strategic level, the intelligence community at the operational level, and then what damage may have occurred outside of the continental USA, the tactical level. At the strategic level, we have the U.S. government, and in this case, I would mean the White House and the Congress. In this case, both of them have been wrong-footed, and they look ineffectual. Damage, to my way of thinking, has been done at the strategic level, particularly because the office of the President of the United States has been made to look ineffective, while having staked its reputation on getting Snowden. What is the key issue here? It is not an event that shapes the future, it is your response to that event that shapes the outcome. The White House in particular has responded poorly and they look bad because of it. Nancy Pelosi? Well, maybe that's a subject for another day. Now, what about damage to the US intelligence community itself? I would say it's too early to tell, but the indicators and warnings at this point tell me we're gonna wind up with another church committee style investigation. The questions here will be, what are the relationship between the American government, 
its spy agencies, and the citizenry. Who has primacy in this case? Is it the government or the citizen? This is yet to be seen, but it's worth noting that in a republic, it is the citizen who is seen to be the master and the government that is seen to be the servant. Mr. Snowden may at some point be seen as an obscure footnote in history, or he may be seen as the Archduke. Too early to tell. Now, what about damage in the rest of the world, the tactical level? So far, I would say nothing. No aircraft have been shot down. No ships have been sunk. There's been no successful terrorist attack occur because of the leaks. This is broadly consistent with the WikiLeaks Assange Manning case. There has been no one killed as a result of this, and I personally don't expect to see any significant damage at the tactical level because of this. Now, ironically, the person who may provide the best entree into looking at what Snowden has done may be General Hayden. At a recent conference, he asked what might happen if Snowden was captured by American forces and returned to America. He wondered out loud, and perhaps he was being deliberately provocative, that what would be the response from what he called nihilists, anarchists, activists, lulsuckers, and 20-somethings who haven't talked to the opposite sex in five or six years. It is worth noting that General Hayden also formerly ran the CIA and the NSA. To my way of thinking, General Hayden raises the correct question about what hackers and others might do to the U.S. government in response to the capture of Snowden. But I also think it's worth noting that most of those hackers, most of those lulzuckers, and most of those people who belong to the organization we loosely call Anonymous are probably Americans. Certainly some of the best hackers in the world are Americans. So, seen from the outside of America, I would have to ask this question. General Hayden, how big is the gap between the American people and their own government on the issues of technology, spying, and intelligence collection against their own citizens? The answer is there is a gap. It's getting bigger. Mr. Snowden is gonna make this gap even bigger, I believe. It is not for nothing that Mr. Snowden is running around 55% in the polls and the Congress is barely able to clear 10. Quick disclosure here, General Hayden saved my butt when I was deployed to the war in the former Yugoslavia. The chief of staff of the UN mission tried to get me fired for giving, and then effectively defending, an intelligence assessment about who was bombing a particular airfield on a particular day. I got fired for this. My immediate supervisor, however, was a U.S. Marine Corps colonel who worked for Hayden. Hayden decided to intervene, and the next day, Tom wasn't fired anymore. General Hayden used to back his intelligence people back then when they were trying to do a good job. This is admirable stuff. Now, one last thought on all of this. Absent from this debate is something that resonates across time in the American culture. The most recent form of this was Admiral Poindexter's Total Information Awareness Project. It will be curious to see if what we now call PRISM is in fact what Admiral Poindexter referred to as Total Information Awareness. His project was publicly dropped back in 2002 as being too audacious and too invasive of privacy. But it seems to have continued behind the scenes. So, do we believe what was unacceptable back in 2002 is now the norm? Is PRISM acceptable? If it is, 
then we should think back to a young fellow named John Adams, who was sitting in a courtroom in the year 1760. He sat in this Boston courtroom, then age 26, and watched the performance of a Boston attorney named James Otis. James Otis was trying to challenge the authority of the British Crown over the new laws that were called writs of assistance. John Adams later wrote that Otis's arguments at the time breathed into this nation the breath of life. He also said the court case was the spark that led to the fire of the revolution. Then and there was the first scene of opposition to the arbitrary claims of Great Britain. Then and there was the child of independence born. James Otis argued that the Ritz were the worst instance of arbitrary power, the most destructive of liberty, and the worst law ever found in an English law book. Otis also asserted that the new writs of assistance would totally annihilate the freedom of one's house. The writs, Otis added, placed the liberty of every man in the hands of a petty bureaucrat in the office of the government. So, what were these writs of assistance which caused so much upset at the time? Well, they were laws that gave the king's men the ability to carte blanche search every home, to read every paper, to seize every belonging of anyone. They permitted officials to enter and go into any house, warehouse, shop, cellar, or place. They could seize any goods. They did not have to have suspicion. There was no judicial process, and they were not obliged to return the papers and the information they collected from those papers of the day. It would appear that King George II and the follow-on King George III were a little over-enthusiastic about collecting data. The subjects of the day got rather upset with this, and this was the spark that lit the fires of the revolution, or at least this is the view of John Adams. Probably worth noting that John Adams went on to be the first vice president of America under George Washington and became the second president of America. As Canadians, of course, perhaps we're not too shocked by all of this. We expect the NSA to spy on us. We're foreigners. But anyway, as Kurt Vonnegut would have said, so it goes. Broken Mirrors. A million years ago, we sat around campfires and talked. A hundred years ago, we sat around the hot stoves at the general store. Today, Mark and Tom are sticking with tradition sitting at the local corner store, A&M Confectionery, wrapping up the latest Broken Mirrors episode. Joining them today is Abby, one of our producers, whose family owns A&M Confectionery. So, we're coming to the end of an episode. Tom. How would you wrap this episode up? We continue to see the fallout from the Snowden affair, especially with the Miranda detention at Heathrow Airport and the destruction of the hard drives at the Guardian newspaper offices. We also continue to assess that most of the damage is reputational at the national level, and in fact, no damage has occurred at the tactical level. Like much of the rest of the affair, the damage is increasingly self-inflicted and calling into question the competency of the agencies and personnel involved. Did someone in the Prime Minister's office or GCHQ really think that forcing the Guardian to destroy hard drives would somehow make the situation better? Mr. Snowden has, more or less, accused the UK and US governments of being overly authoritarian and too intrusive into the lives of their citizens and subjects. To date, it is difficult to assess if the response from the governments is working to dispel 
or enhance the accusation. At the strategic level, what we're seeing is an increasing divergence between statesmen who have a view of the national interest and politicians who only view their own political power. I think the Guardian incidents also highlight how many politicians also want to seem to get rid of their only real guardians, the press, by branding them as terrorists. If the real damage we are seeing is reputational, then it is important to note that it is damage to both the reputations of individual politicians and also to the nations that elect them. So Mark, what can we expect from next month's episode? Abby, we're going to keep on in a similar vein, looking at the intersections of technology changes, politics, and national reputation. But rather than focus on the intelligence area, we're going to look at the underbelly of international economics. We have talked about technology and its effects on the intelligence community, journalism, and the citizens and subjects of their respective governments. What we would like to talk about next is technology, the financial institutes, central banks, and their role in an existential threat to our economy and to our individual well-being. What has not been discussed in public forums or addressed by the intelligence and security communities has been the potential fallout from damage to the central nervous system of our economy, the payments and settlement system. Without this system, the economy stops, completely. Yet virtually no one in the intelligence community understands the threat posed, the risks involved, the fallout, despite significant indicators and warnings. Broken mirrors. This has been Broken Mirrors, Episode 1, My Brother's Keeper, for August 2013, a podcast covering issues in the intelligence, security, and military communities. For much more information about this episode and the series, please visit brokenmirrors.ca to view the show notes, leave a comment, and listen to the extended material. The Descent and dangerous are compositions generously provided by Kevin McLeod through Incompetech.com. Our thanks to our guests, Mark Stout, and to Ian McLeod of the Ottawa Citizen newspaper. Ian may be reached at OttawaCitizen.com. This episode of Broken Mirrors was written and presented by our host and executive producer, Mark Terrell and our co-host Tom Quiggin, producer Tim Riley, intern producer Abby Buruk, and associate producer Stephanie Bach, who is also responsible for elevating the general tone with her artwork. I'm Donna Moore. This podcast is copyright 2013, Broken Mirror Studios, and is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial. No Derivative Works, 2.5, Canada License.